Let's ask God to help us. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we do thank you that your word is not chained, that it can do your work in our hearts wherever we are. And so, gracious God, we do pray that it would turn us to Jesus, helping us to trust him for life, and that it would teach, rebuke, correct and train us so that we would live the lives that honour you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, remember the Yazidis whose territory in northern Iraq was overrun by ISIS in 2014? As they fled, they knew fear, thirst and hunger and we saw it on our TVs. Thinking on their experience will bring you a little closer to what has befallen the population of Judah through multiple Babylonian campaigns, terror, dislocation and hunger and now the survivors of the various deportations are in Babylon, homesick on the hot plains of Babylon, not the cool mountains of Judah, eating different food at the bottom of the economic ladder, grieving the exiled Israelites had lost so much, shed so many tears, a despised minority ruled by the most ruthless of nations. We have not known what they have known. We've not been, thankfully, a conquered people taken from our homes and families. But as you hear God speak to these exiles, speak to them of his commitment to act for them, recognise that what has befallen them has, is terrible and recognise also that their grief was for more than themselves personally. Israel's very existence as a nation of people with a continuing distinct identity was under threat. They had lost everything that distinguished them as a people. Their land, the worship of their God at his temple, their capital, their own government. Could they, would they survive or would this be the end of all that they had known, the complete loss of their identity? Their identity as the people of the Lord, the God who had rescued their forefathers from Egypt and given them their land. And as soon as you ask that question, you realise there is another dimension to this great tragedy. Israel are the Lord's people. Uh, and the exile generation, just part of a much bigger story that had started with Abraham. Actually, a story that had started with Adam. You see, the Lord had made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 that he would be a great nation and that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. And the Lord had entered into covenant, a solemn agreement and commitment with Abraham and his descendants, Genesis 17. The Lord said to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. It was this commitment which was expressed in the creation of Israel as a nation through the Lord's rescue of them from Egypt. He's entering into covenant with them at Sinai. He's giving them the good land. The Lord's commitment had shaped their history, given them their identity, and these promises to Abraham and his offspring had been elaborated in his dealings with Israel through the prophets, elaborated to include all nations. 
So, for example, Isaiah 2, the Lord says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways. And in Isaiah 49, God speaking to the servant who would rescue Israel, the Lord says, It's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach, may reach to the end of the earth. Israel were the bearers of the means of achieving the Lord's purpose for the world. For it was through Abraham and his descendants, Israel, that the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth, had chosen to respond to Adam's sin and all its awful consequences. Uh, what has befallen Israel is then not just a cause of great individual grief and suffering, not just a threat to their existence as a nation. It appears to be a threat to the Lord doing all that he has promised, to his achieving his purposes for blessing for the world, for creation, to him being the Lord of heaven and earth. Israel's destruction looks like a denial of the Lord being the God he says he is. So how had the Israelites come to their miserable state? How had this challenge to the Lord, to his fulfilling his promises and achieving his purpose arisen? That's what we'll see in verses 1 to 10. And then what does the Lord say that he will do about it? That's what we'll see in verse 11 following. And then what does that mean for Israel and for us? Is there comfort for the grieving, hope for the dispossessed, hope for the losers in history, for those enslaved to death? So firstly, how did things get so bad? How did the people come to suffer so much? Uh, earlier in uh, the book, Ezekiel spoken of the sin of all the people, but in verses 2 to 6, he speaks of Israel, as we've heard in the children's talk, as sheep and their kings as shepherds. He focuses on the actions of those kings and the effect it has had on the sheep. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, are shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. Should not the shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The Lord addresses the shepherds, the kings, but he doesn't point to this wrong decision or that, this bad alliance or that. He focuses on their attitude. They have acted selfishly, thinking the flock was there for them to provide for and enrich them. They wanted all the benefits of having a flock of sheep, the wool, the meat, without any care, any of the work. They were just focused on their own wants and neglected the sheep, and they were lazy and uncaring. 
They did not treat them as as if each one mattered. The sheep were not valuable to them. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. Because of their selfishness and neglect, the people were scattered left defenceless, placed in mortal danger with no one to bring them back and protect them. Israel had come to their terrible situation because of a failure of their kings, their rulers, because they acted with gross self-interest and indifference to the sheep. And they had forgotten what the Lord makes clear in verses 5 and 6. The flock was the Lord's, they are my sheep. But these kings acted as if the flock was their own and they had the right to use and abuse it as they willed. It is a terrible thing when a people or a Christian church has leadership who are just in it for themselves, who forget that the Lord is king and they will give account to him. But Israel is God's flock. They matter to him. And so the Lord, verse 7 following, pronounces his judgment on these lazy, selfish shepherds because they've been selfish exploiters of those in their care and because they've not done their job and because as a consequence the sheep have suffered so much and been lost, they are, verse 10, finished. Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. I am against you, says the Lord. In refusing to be God's servants, they have become his enemies. I will require there will be a reckoning for their treatment of the sheep. He will put a stop to their exploitation of the flock, The Lord will act to save his flock, judging their oppressors and rescuing them from these internal predators. How had Israel come to their miserable state, scattered and defenceless, teetering on the brink of extinction? How had the fulfilment of the Lord's promises been put in doubt? It was by sin, by the sin of the shepherds. But what we see as we read on is that it is not just the sin of the rulers. We all like to blame and complain about our leaders when things go wrong, to focus entirely on their shortcomings, and I'm sure you've heard a bit of that now at uh, this time. But the rot of selfishness is in the flock as well. The strong selfishly deprive the weak of the enjoyment of what is Provided for all, verse 18. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pasture and to drink of clear water that you must muddy the rest of the water with your feet? And must my sheep eat what you have trodden with your feet and drink what you have muddied with your feet? And the strong, as we saw in the children's talk, are bullying, verse 21, the weaker sheep. Because of the oppression and greed in the flock, nothing is left now for the weak and needy. The behaviour of some is spoiling life for all. Israel's problems are not just the result of the selfish, simple hearts of their rulers. The flock, the Israelites, act with that same selfish sinfulness. 
And the strong here are not alone. They're not the exceptions. They are just the ones with the opportunity to express the selfishness that is in the heart of us all. The desire that we should get our own way, be able to make life good and comfortable for ourselves at the expense of others, use while others lose. The rot of selfishness of self-love is in all our hearts. And for example, as I read of how the strong want to take it all and leave nothing that's usable for the rest, I couldn't help but think of how we, the economically strong, want all the best and latest consumer goods cheaply at the cost of others working in sweatshops and living in factory dormitories, lives we would not want for ourselves or our children. It's a cliche, isn't it, to say sin causes misery. But it is true. It was true for Israel, true for the Yazidis, true for us. When, for example, Paul gives a list of sinful behaviours in uh, Romans 1, in Romans 1, uh, when he speaks of people as full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, as being gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to their parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, these are not just words. These are behaviours and attitudes that impoverish and wound that destroy trust, that pit one person against another, can rob us of peace even in our own homes. As a race, we're in a terrible position because of our sin. Our sin causes our misery. And when you see sin in the shepherds, in the flock, in ourselves, you wonder how can the good God ever succeed in bringing blessing? I mean, he had a good shot with Israel. He defeated their enemies, gave them good laws and structures, sent them prophets and others to teach his law. But in Babylon, it looks more and more like a failed experiment, frustrated by our addiction to putting self first. So what will become of the Lord's promises? What will become of the Lord's reputation, which he's associated with this sinful people? Well, the Lord answers in verses 11 to 24. Now, I hope as you heard those verses read by Chris before, it sent a kind of tingle up your spine because here you have the clear and definite commitment of the living almighty God, his commitment to save, to rescue his sinful people. Did you notice as those verses were being read, all the eyes, the I myself, Let me read it again, stressing God's commitment because that is actually what should hit you between the eyes here. This is something the Lord will do, the Lord alone by himself. Reading from verse 11, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness, and I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land, and I will feed them. 
on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with the good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. They shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pastures they shall feed on the mountains. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the straight. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. This is a boots and all commitment by the almighty God. This is the word of the God whose word brought the world into being. You see, the Lord will be what human leaders failed to be. He will shepherd, verse 15, his flock. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And he, he commits himself to reverse the effects of their sinful selfishness. He will search for them, rescue them, bring them, gather them, feed them. He will bring the exiles back to the land, the mountain heights of Israel. And look again at verse 16. His care will be the very opposite of the neglect of the shepherds in verse 4. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the straight. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. Each sheep matters to him. He knows and cares for them individually and he will ensure his flock is one where justice and righteousness prevail. I will feed them in justice. (coughs) This commitment to justice expanded in verses 17 to 22 to ruling his people in righteousness, to judging between sheep and sheep, 2 verse 22, rescuing his flock from internal and external exploiters and destroyers, tells you that when the Lord gathers his flock, it won't be more of the same. He is promising more. He is promising new life for the flock. This is a big commitment, one that transcends the re-establishment of Israel in the land after exile. And as part of gathering his flock, he will restore a true human ruler over them. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. Now there is a lot to unpack in those two verses. Notice for starters that it is the Lord who establishes this David, not this David who establishes the Lord's rule. This prince's power and authority will come from God, This David's not self-appointed, not chosen by the people. And the Lord says that there will now be just one shepherd, singular for his people. In himself he will end the division between the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel. There will be only one flock. And because he is one, his rule won't be marked by the inconsistency of the succession of historic kings. And being one it's implied that his rule will be eternal. And the Lord names this one shepherd, my servant David. Not David come to life again, a kind of King Arthur figure waiting to be awakened. No, this one will embody David's line. 
in whom God will keep his promise to David in 2 Samuel of establishing the throne of his kingdom forever. And this king rules as my servant. In contrast to the self-seeking kings who came before, he rules by faithfully doing the Lord's will. And he is here described as a prince while being called a king later in Ezekiel 37. He's called a prince here to stress that the Lord is the true king. The Lord is the shepherd of Israel. He is the one who rescues his people and establishes his king. And this prince is both over and among his people. He has authority, but he is also close to them, one who will symbolise both the Lord's presence and rule amongst his people. Again, a big commitment. A shepherd king from David who will be greater than David and rule forever, a rescue that will recreate the people in justice and righteousness. This is what God promises. What will that look for? Look like for the Lord's rescued people? What will it be like to live under the rule of this David? I will make with them, says the Lord, a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. Being rescued by the Lord, being shepherded by this David can be summed up in one word, shalom, peace. I will make with them a covenant of peace. I will make. This is something God does. There's no if, then, here. God has made it depend entirely on himself. And it's a covenant of peace. The Lord's saying that what will characterise their relationship from then on is peace, peace with him, the holy God. And what follows is a description of that peace of shalom. There will be freedom of conflict in all relationships. Being at peace with God, they will know peace in relating to each other and creation. Positively, peace is wholeness, harmony, fulfilment. For a people in want, it is the blessing of abundance. Verse 26, I'll send down the showers in their season. They shall be showers of blessing and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit and the earth shall yield its increase. Oh, for a people oppressed, it is deliverance. Verse 27b. Oh, I will break the bars of their yoke and deliver them from the hands of those who enslaved them. For a people dispossessed, it is coming to dwell in their own land. They will, verse 27, be secure in their own land. And for a people in fear, it is security. They shall dwell securely and none will make them afraid. Peace for a people who have been under judgment, is a reversal of that judgment. No longer is God against them. And the climax of this peace is a renewal of the covenant relationship where God, verse 30, is again present among them, with them. At the final reversal of the tragedy of 586 BC. You see, recalling the words of Leviticus 26 where the chief blessing of the covenant will be God walking amongst his people, their God and they his people. God says here in Ezekiel verse 30, they shall know that I am the Lord their God with them 
and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God. What they could not come to enjoy by their own efforts, never achieved by their own efforts, the Lord commits himself here to bring about that he really would be their God and they his people and he living amongst them. And God makes it clear at the end that he really is speaking of them and to them this sinful Israel. You are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture, and I am your God. Peace. So good to belong to this people whose shepherd is the Lord and his prince David. Now, we're not in exile, but this peace is what we want and need, to live free from fear, free from want, free from anxiety about what tomorrow will bring, to be free from fear of judgment because God has brought us to enjoy peace with himself, to be able to live with God in the presence of God where there's no grief or pain or mourning or tears where there'll be no longer any death. This is the peace that God here in Ezekiel 34, commits himself to achieve for his people. He alone, it is his gracious gift to a sinful, burdened people. Well, the Lord spoke those words to Israel almost two and a half thousand years ago. So has he kept this promise? Has he achieved this rescue and peace? And can we, who are not Jews, share in this peace promised to Israel? Praise God, the answer to that question is yes and yes. You see, these promises in Ezekiel 34 always looked beyond the Lord bringing the Israelites back to Judea as he did after 70 years of exile. He has spoken here of the judging and removal of sin from his people. He has spoken of one ruler whose reign is eternal. He's spoken of bringing peace to sinners, perfect peace. And he has said that he himself would do it. He himself would be their shepherd and he himself would rescue his people. (coughs) Back in Jerusalem after the exile, still living under foreign rulers with no king of David's line, the people generation after generation, still looked for the fulfilment of this promise. And then hundreds of years later, the Lord sent his son, his son Jesus, uh, the one before his birth who was announced as Emmanuel, God with us, the one to whom the Lord God would give the throne of his father David, who would reign over the house of Jacob forever, whose kingdom will have no end. And Jesus, in John 10, taught that he was the one this passage spoke of, the one through whom God would keep his promise, establish his rule, bring that reign of peace. Jesus taught the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they, the sheep, may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. In contrast to all others who sought to rule the sheep, he is God's good shepherd. He brings life and the life offered in John's gospel is the life of shalom, of peace. 
It is eternal life, life without death, the life of the new age, the age to come, life that is abundant, rich and never exhausted. He brings peace, eternal life. And Jesus is the good shepherd who cares for, who loves his sheep, laying down his life for them, to protect them, to keep them, to gather them to himself, to bring them that peace. And he will gather that flock. Be the one shepherd of all God's people. I have other sheep, he said, who have not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock and one shepherd. And Jesus teaches here that he is that good shepherd as he does the Father's will, laying down his life for the sheep and taking it up again. This command, he says, I have received from my Father. He does the Father's will will. Unsurprisingly, Jesus talking to Jews who knew their Old Testament of himself as the good shepherd who would give life to and gather the Lord's people provoked opposition. They knew what he was claiming and they said he's a demon, he's mad. But but Jesus in response did not back down. In fact, he intensified his claim to be the one, the only one who could fulfil this prophecy of Ezekiel, this prophecy of what the Lord would do. He said he gives his people eternal life. He makes them eternally secure. No one plucks them from his hand. And he says that he is one with the Father, that in gathering and giving life to his sheep, giving eternal peace to them, he is God at work doing what God has said God would do. That was a claim that could get you killed in first century Judea. And in the end, it did. In their rejection of God come amongst them, the leaders of of the Jewish people killed Jesus on the cross. But here we see what is always true. People's sinful rebellion against God does not threaten the fulfilment of God's good promises to give life to his people. That rebellion only serves the fulfilment of God's purpose and promise. At the death of the Lord Jesus, the death the Lord Jesus died dealt with the sin of his people. It became the source of our peace with God, eternal peace, because it dealt with that sin forever. We are reconciled, that is, we come to enjoy peace with God, writes the Apostle Paul, through the death of Jesus. The barrier to peace with the holy God, our sin and the punishment it deserves, is removed by God as Christ on the cross endures the Lord's just judgment on our sin, endures it in our place. So those who trust in him need never fear God will be against them. Need never fear. God's judgment can enjoy eternal peace. And the Lord Jesus laying down his life on the cross to take it up again at the resurrection also establishes his eternal reign. With undying life, Jesus is the one king who rules over God's people forever, rules over all. He has all authority and can always protect and keep his people. And it is through his being lifted up on the cross that he starts to gather all God's scattered people. Jesus said, I, when I am lifted up, will draw all people to myself. The Lord God keeps his word. 
He brings peace to a sinful people as he promised and he does it. The Father and the Son and the Spirit, the one God, he does it alone. And in bringing peace to sinful Israel and keeping his word to them, he makes it possible for you and I today to share in that life and the peace he brings. (coughs) The death that deals with Israel's sin deals with ours. It was for the world in love that God gave his son so that whoever, not just Jews, but you and I, whoever now believes in him can have eternal life. You and I can belong to the flock of God, be Jesus' sheep as we listen to his voice, as we hear and respond to his call to trust him, to believe in him and to follow him. And if you are not yet a believer, hear that. Our sin, your sin, messes life up. It brings misery and in the end it brings death. But the gracious God is offering you life and peace if you will turn back to him, if you will believe in Jesus, that he is the son sent from the father to save, that his death was God's provision for your peace and that he reigns now forever to forgive all those who call upon him. So confess your rebellion, your sin to him and ask him to forgive you, to receive you into his people, be reconciled to your creator through trust in his son who died for you. And if you're already a believer, do you see again how good our God is? Where our sin brings death, scatters, exploits, destroys Our God commits himself, himself alone, to bring life, to gather, to nurture, to protect, and he does it, does it through sending his son to die for sinners. Our God keeps his word with undeviating faithfulness. You can rely wholly on him. He is the God, he says he is, the Lord of heaven and earth, the one who has life in himself, almighty. You can rely wholly on him. He is gracious and loves his people. He seeks the lost, binds up the wounded, strengthens the weak. You can cast all your cares on him. And now as then, whether it was in the destruction of Jerusalem or the death of Jesus, people's sinful rebellion against God does not threaten the fulfilment of God's good promises to give life to his people. It only serves the fulfilment of God's purpose and promise. And we need to hear that. For we have not yet come to the fullness of all that God has promised. We have peace with God's now. God now, praise God. But we still live in a world in rebellion against our God and we still live in the bodies we've inherited from Adam. In this world we suffer because we are his sheep, his flock. As Paul says, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But knowing the Lord's determination to save his people, I, I myself, he says, And knowing our God's faithfulness and might in keeping his word through the death of Jesus and knowing his graciousness and love in bringing sinners peace and being assured of that as we trust him because Christ has dealt with all our sin.
we can also say with Paul, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, for I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And knowing that, knowing that God has kept his word We are now those extraordinary privileged people who can face life each day saying, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Our sin, human sin, which we see all around us, is awful and it brings misery. But it will not derail God's plans and purposes, including his plans and purposes for us believers in Jesus. For he has made their fulfilment depend on himself, on himself alone. Hear God's commitment in Ezekiel 34 to rescue a shattered people and see again how good our God is and see how good it is to belong to his flock, to have the Lord Jesus as your shepherd and have confidence in him in all the circumstances of your life, whether that is stressed out from working from home or stressed by having no work, whether it's feeling worn down, burdened by the constant focus on COVID numbers or being dismayed by not being able to see your friends or feeling like you're treading water and you're just getting tired or or whether it's because you're doing well but so anxious for others. Whatever your circumstances, have confidence in him, the God who says, I myself will rescue my people I will seek the lost, I will bring back the strayed, I will bind up the injured, I will strengthen the weak. Have confidence in the God who seeks and rescues because he loves. Loves enough to send his son to be our good shepherd and give him thanks and praise. Thanks and praise for his steadfast love and faithfulness. As the psalmist said, Your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the crowds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory cover all the earth. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we pray that we would feel the power of your commitment to save, to rescue your people, and to free them from the consequences of sin, their sin and the sin of others. And gracious Father, we pray that we would know for ourselves the fulfilment of that commitment in your sending your son, the Lord Jesus, to be our good shepherd, to lay down his life, to give us life. We pray that we would be overwhelmed by your faithfulness and your steadfast love, your graciousness and your mercy to the undeserving and be renewed in our confidence in you, our thankfulness in the peace you have brought us with yourself and our hope for the fulfilment of all that you have promised us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.